Some states are now moving towards treaties with First Nations people. In Queensland, legislation was passed in May to allow the government and Indigenous communities to progress further down the path towards a treaty. And both our guests on today's show are involved with that journey. Publisher, playwright, author, speaker, director, teacher, lecturer and traditional dancer. These are just a few of the roles Auntie Cheryl Buchanan has filled. Highly esteemed by the First Nations community for her lifetime of commitment to the advancement of First Nations people, she is now involved in leadership of the Queensland Treaty process. Arnie Cheryl Buchanan does not seem to be slowing down any time soon. Arnie Cheryl, welcome to Speaking Out. Now, before we dive in, um, I wanted to maybe set the scene a little bit and ask you if you could share with us where you grew up and what shaped you particularly to have such a strong sense of social justice? Wow. So I grew up in Kunnamulla for um early part of my childhood. Always went back there, though, from a fairly dysfunctional um, family life. But uh, my grandmother was my stability, I think. And she herself uh, was was a domestic, so was a slave. My I come from, you know, a line of slaves, those who survived the massacres. And she started a laundry business in Kunnamulla and uh, very forthright, very um, great values, great principles about life and always taught me that education was very important and that there was a world waiting outside there for me outside of Kunnamulla. So it's funny how just a few things that are said to you in your childhood really can influence um, where you end up in your life. And I, I owe it to her, I think. And my mother and all of my aunts. I grew up in a household of seven deadly black women. Can you imagine that? I didn't have any other choice. And they all loved to talk, the whole lot of them. Amazing. And were they, uh, you know, were they very engaged with politics? Because you seem to get uh, very actively involved in community politics at a very young age. Yeah, I think from my family, I'm probably, I guess, a standout in that sense. But they all um, were engaged in community organisations but also involved in politics as well. So early Fikatsi, a couple of my aunts were involved in the Fikatsi movement, for example. You know, sometimes history just happens to fall on your lap and I think the time that I was born, the things that were going on and the kind of changes that were happening throughout the world heavily influenced where I ended up in uh, Brisbane and I always wanted to, you know, get out and get to the big smoke like every other young black fella. And so when I got there, I immediately got went to a Fikatsi conference with my two aunts. And I think from there, um, yeah, I just started getting involved with some of the people and really liked the idea that we could try and change, you know, the world and change our world. There's a lot of focus on Redfern and its politics and, and Victoria. I think sometimes it gets a bit lost at how many great political thinkers were based in Brisbane. And also the fact that you had the Bjorki-Peterson influence, which was very aggressive, violent towards blackfellas. It was a very different environment. What were your, some of your reflections of that time that you think it's really important that people don't forget about what was very particular about Brisbane and Queensland? Well, for a start, I think the, the sad thing about, you know, reflecting on things is that I find everything very Sydney-centric, New South Wales-centric in, t- in terms of how things were 
filmed and videoed and interviews and photos and everything that not a lot seems to have been captured in what I would think would be probably one of the most exciting times in history in Brisbane in that you had a clear breakaway from the kind of assimilationist viewpoint to a viewpoint of self-determination, black control of black affairs. And the only only things that really um, uh, talked about uh, some of the demonstrations that occurred, but they in themselves don't give you a breadth of understanding of the horrors that people were going through and all of us were going through during those times. There was a meeting, for example, in 84, Larissa, I don't know if you know about it, but it was held in Roma and it was with all of the cow cockies, you know, all the landholders, and Bielke Peterson and Russ Hinds and them organised that. And they were just hyping up saying, you know, the blackfellas are coming to take your land. And after that period what happened was that there was so much destruction of cultural sites, um, artefacts and so on. Um, you know, they dynamited uh, caves where they knew there, there may have been um, paintings. They dynamited uh, rock wells and so on. These things, of course, you're not going to read about them in anywhere really, but, you know, it was significant because it really fueled our passion and made us even more determined to continue on in what we were doing because when you go from a space of uh, we don't want to be the quiet little black fellas, you know, we speak your language and we dress in your clothes, to starting to question the authority, question what's going on with the corporates, question what's going on with mining um, in particular, then everything changes. Everything changes very dramatically. Our organisations that we set up, people think that they were set up because people actually cared about what was happening in the communities. Our Aboriginal medical service and legal service and that, they were set up because we cared, because we saw the need for something to happen. And I was involved in that, you know, as one of the founders of some of those early organisations. And it wasn't for the unions and probably the Communist Party at that stage and some, you know, amazing Jewish friends that we had who used to donate to our uh, struggle and to donate to our cause that, you know, we're able to at least provide some assistance. Everything was voluntary then. Uh, We didn't have funds at all. I used to sell took raffles at the Adelaide Hotel and I wasn't allowed in the hotel because the aunties wouldn't let me go in the hotel. So I'd be passing passing a little raffle book, you know, through the through the uh, windows. <laughs> yeah, so oh, honestly, I'm I'm just so glad that I was I was part of it all, you know, really and truly. Well, I'm really grateful we got a chance to hear a bit of that history. It's a, as you say, it's it's sort of something that gets brushed over, but it's a very big, important part of what people fought for. And um, I do want to acknowledge that you did have that role in the establishment of those community-controlled organisations. You mentioned that your the women in your family had been involved in them too. I do want to get on to some of the work that you're doing now, but just on the community-controlled organisations, you talked about their importance they've you've really committed to building them up from your perspective why why would you how do you explain why you feel they're so important and what their role is today when we're living in a very different time to what it was when you were first setting them up 
Well, we only have to look at what's happening with closing the gap, end of story. You know that we still need to be doing these uh, things. We still need to be uh, taking control of our lives because if we don't do it, the government's not going to do it. No one's going to do it for us. When things become really effective in our community, you know this as well as I do, Larissa, they cut the funding, they cut the resourcing, you know, the, the legal aid, you know, the whole, oh, you can go to legal aid. Legal aid came because they were trying to undercut the existence and, well, the success of the Aboriginal legal services, for example, because we had some fantastic lawyers in there who later became, you know, ministers and all kinds of different things. You know, Matt Foley was one of them. So we had these great solicitors who really fought for uh, social justice. And in those early days, I often like to remind people that there was a thing called Her Majesty's Pleasure. So a lot of young people would come down from communities and end up in Brisbane, as a lot of us did, and for very minor charges when they were picked up, uh, it could be, you know, common assault or whatever it might have been. But at the time, a lot of them were getting Her Majesty's Pleasure, which means that only the Queen could let you out of jail. And so a lot of those deaths in custody that were reported in the Royal Commission report were a lot of those young people who came through the system in the in the late 60s, early 70s. Where we are now is we are struggling. People are struggling uh, for survival. Uh, it's not about, you know, struggling for relevance and, you know, here, look at us, here we are. But it's the fact that the statistics say it all. We've got the data to show that we have more children being taken from families. We have more people in custody, more juveniles in custody. I wouldn't have ever dreamed in the 70s to see the number of Aboriginal females that are now incarcerated, um, you know, and, and some for very, you know, serious charges as well. Who would have ever thought that? So there are these huge problems going on and people are just struggling to know how can we get through this maze when the resourcing is being taken over by non-Indigenous and this black cladding that's going on is, is so true here in Queensland. You've got all these organisations set up who are coming in and out of communities, you know, local towns, wherever it is, some of the discrete communities like Sherberg and so on, coming in and out every day of the week, five days a week, providing services and there's no outcomes. So what does that say to you? Uh, people care? Of course. No, they don't. So we have to keep maintaining as best we can all of those community-controlled organisations that we have. You know, they're our last stand, really, in some ways. Given the amount of uh, effort you've put into the protection of Indigenous rights and the building of community-controlled organisations, what led you to want to be involved in the treaty process that's currently occurring in Queensland? Well, if you look historically, I mean, people have been talking about treaties forever. You know, everyone wants to be the first one who said something. But at the end of the day, I think that if we look right through um, our history, uh, there was great leadership and people were talking about treaty. You know, in recent times, you know, the call for Makarata by, by Atsik when Atsik was in power, and it's just continued on through the years. I think, you know, with the Queen dying and you go, 
you know, the British colony, how long is this going to exist in the minds and our lives where we have to continue to be under the thumb of the British Empire for whatever that is? Because we don't get anything from it. What do we get for it? We have our people still living in fourth world conditions. Two hours, you know, from Brisbane um, in Cherbourg, you know, there aren't a lot of mansions there happening. There's not a lot of, you know, a lot going on for the community there. The great change now is that they have a woman um, who is a mayor trying to, you know, do things. But all I'm saying to you is that we have to have something. We have to give our people something to look forward to into the future. And I think the treaty is it. I think that just the discussion, just the conversation about treaty... I won't be around probably, um, you know, if tre- once treaty is even signed, I would say. But I think that it's an important conversation because we need to get people thinking that you don't have to just accept what's been our lot in life for the last 236 years, that things can be better. And as I say, when I've been doing consultations, you can wake up one day and say, I'm not just surviving anymore today. I'm living my best life. Now, on what day has that ever happened to any blackfella? None that I know of. Because it doesn't matter. Every day you still, even if you may be living a comfortable life, you might have a job, whatever it might be, that doesn't mean to say everyone in your family or your clan or your mob has got the same things. And we all go through sorry business. We are all there because... When someone in our community bleeds, we all bleed. That's who we are as a people. That's what kept us here for 65,000 years. You know, that's within our DNA. When you've gone around and done those consultations, a big state, and you've done a lot of them, what are the sorts of aspirations or concerns that you're hearing back from the community about the potential for a treaty and the other aspects of the process that you're looking at, truth-telling and representation? You know, I think generally, Larissa, everyone wants treaty. I think there was always a huge concern that was raised at every meeting, even going back to the treaty working group that I was a part of in 2019, where people were saying, do we have to give, will will that mean that we'll lose our sovereignty? So the good thing about it is that we've gone kind of past that conversation now and people have a lot more understanding that we are a sovereign people and we can live as sovereign people on a daily basis if that's what we choose to do. And so when the uh, Path to Treaty Bill was being co-designed and written, it was historic because you would have read the preamble and I think what we've tried to do in the preamble is to capture, I think, really all the hearts and minds of people, you know, in saying, we have culture, we have law, we have all of those things which we consider are a society and not, you know, have to say we are civilised, you know, the old 70s cry. Um, We are a society and we have science, we have all of those things which make us a society. And to start seeing those things now being lived out on uh, documentaries, on some of the films, on some of the truth-telling that's happening 
um, with some of the stories that you see on SBS and so on and ABC. It's a testament to the fact that people want to do things differently now. People want to tell the story. People want to have a better life in the future. And we just don't need to sit back and accept what has been dished out for us um, for all of this time. We need to think big, I think. That's the other thing. Well, I would say I encourage people, as we did the consultations, you know, for our mob, we're just saying, oh, you know, the service organisations, you know, they're not doing their jobs and we've got mental health issues and this issue. And and I said to them, you know, like, these are human rights things. To have a decent house, to have access to uh, proper medical treatment and so on, these are human rights issues. Within this discussion, we need to be thinking much more broadly than that and much deeper than that. And we need to be thinking about, okay, in that 65,000 years, if that is the figure, and it doesn't matter if it's correct or not. I mean, we've been here since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation. You know, this is a question that I'd say to people to, and, and people would respond and say, well, you know, what did you lose? What have we lost in all of that time? What, what was taken? So it's not just about having a 236-year conversation. It's about getting people to think beyond that about where we've come from and where we want to be. And, you know, the land was taken forcefully. Our people were murdered, raped and so on. And do we have access to traditional country largely in Queensland? No, that's not the case. It's very... Mishmash, you know, you still, through native title, as you know, you still have to get permission from the property owner if you can go onto the property to perform your cultural heritage business if that's what you want to do. But people are exhausted. How, how, how many people have got the time to forge those relationships which require them to get on these vast tracts of land which they haven't had access to because they're all removed from their traditional country or only lived on a very small portion of their traditional country. And so I think people reached a, maybe a place of exhaustion. We've kind of now on the road to on the road to hope. That's what I talk about. I think that we're on the road to hope, that we are vesting a lot in this treaty discussion on hope, hope that there will be people who are out there, who are going to be listening, people who will want to participate. You know, we had over, what, 200,000 people who walked the bridge for reconciliation. So there are a lot of good people out there who've become silent, who, who've just become defeated in, in where they were at. But I think what we have to do is, yeah, you know, inspire them again, reignite those passions in people. And I'm starting to see it. And I know that people think that it's got a bit murky because of the voice discussions and so on. But I still have, you know, I still have a lot of faith in people at the end of the day that I think there are enough people out there who can make a difference in getting treaties. Uh, it could be one treaty, it could be several treaties. I don't know how many treaties we'll end up with. But I, I think it, it's going to be done. It strikes me reflecting on 
the enormous contribution you've made and how long you've been on the front line. I'd love to hear that you still have hope. Can you share with us where you get your strength from? What keeps the fire in the belly after all of these years, especially when, as you have pointed out, the increasing rates of child removal, continual deaths in custody, overrepresentation of women in the criminal justice system. So that hasn't changed. But for you, as somebody who continues to be a warrior, where do you get that strength from? You know, it's really funny. I had, um, not long ago, they uh, had seven stages of living. They did a living tribute for me at uh, Queensland Performing Arts Centre. And it's kind of a question that I had to answer myself, really, because I had to, you know, get up and do a thing at the end of it. For me, I believe that from a very early stage, I believed that I was, and I still believe, that I'm revolutionary. And as a revolutionary, what you do is you use every tool that you can. You never just stay with one thing. Whatever comes along, you give it a go. If it doesn't work, you try something else. I'm so proud of our people that we um, decided to survive, that our ancestors who, who survived the massacres decided we are going to survive. And I think they've imprinted that into our brains. And to continue our cultural values and continue our law within our thinking in the way that we live, in the way that we present ourselves and the way that we do. And like I said, it's in our DNA anyway. The other thing that I always remind people is that, you know, there's only one race. There's only one race. That's a human race, right? <laughs> we, we have a lot of different, you know, cultures and, and amazing things. But we're all on this one planet and people forget that as well. People exist and live their lives as if there are all these other planets out there. No, we're all in this one planet. And guess what? If it goes, we all go. I don't even know if that makes sense, Larissa, but it's a driving force for me because I, I think that there is some amazing uh, geographically, culturally, uh, whichever way you look at it, we are so blessed. I mean, what, what kind of world were we born into? You know, I think that if you're going to live, uh, you have to decide that you're going to live. And if you're going to live, then you have to contribute. And if you're going to contribute, what are you going to do to make changes each day? You know, and the other mantra of my mum was, you know, respect caring and sharing. Oh, my God, we heard that every day of the week practically. And then as I had children, she'd be passing it on to them and now I find myself passing it on to my grandchildren. And just, you know, just little things like that uh, are reminders that if we are humble, if we continue, you know, to, to treat each other with respect, if we do share what we are doing and we do care about our people, then you can make huge changes. And at the end of the day, what makes changes, Larissa? It's people. It is only That's the only way that things can change in this world and for our people is ourselves. We're the masters of our own destiny. You know, self-determination means we take control 
of our lives. We take control of the conversations and we take control of the place that we want to be. And it's more important now because within the next 10 years, we are going to have this huge population of young people, 25 years and under. We have a duty right now to try and tell the story correctly, educate our young people in particular, and educate our mob so that they have the tools, have the tools to keep the fight going. No one's going to give us anything. Whatever we're going to get in our lives, we're going to have to fight for. And that includes treaty. That includes treaty and getting the best of what people expect that we are owed for the things that have happened to us, things that happened to our ancestors. Honey, Cheryl Buchanan, what a privilege to have you on the show. I want to thank you for your lifelong commitment to our issues, your wisdom and your ability to always make sure that we dream big and have hope. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on Speaking Out. Well, thank you and thank you to all the listeners. I, I know I'm a bit of a rambler sometimes, but... Yeah, you know, maybe another time, another time we can come back. You and come talk. back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It was a privilege. Thank Thanks, you so Teresa. much. Thanks, Teresa. Bye bye.